friends, welcome back to Rewildology. Holy smokes, am I so stoked to release this episode. Today I'm chatting with Arthur Laforestier, who is an awesome friend of mine and is absolutely crushing it in wildlife photography. We discuss his tumultuous road that led him to wildlife photography, the ethics and misconceptions of the field, and Arthur gives some great advice for anybody that's looking to make a big career shift or life change, or if anybody else is feeling a little lost where you're currently at in life. There are some big takeaways from this episode, and I am so pumped to hear what you all think. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. I read all comments, and I highly appreciate this awesome community we're building. So now, let's get to the show. Awesome. Well, hi. Well, hello. How are you? I'm doing great now that I can finally hear you. I know, about a half hour of technical difficulties, but we are good. We are in here now. This is awesome. Got our morning brew. It's like a little coffee shop date since we're about nine hours apart now. (laughs) Now that you live up in Jackson. Nine hours, yeah. Oh my God, the drive here is so treacherous, especially in the winter. Mm. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it was, I can see windy. that. Oh, really? Is it mostly through like the heart of Wyoming that it gets pretty? Yeah, I would say the sketchiest part is like, um, if you hit Southern Wyoming, um, midwinter, when it's snowy and icy, the thing is it's snowy and then the wind is so intense that it'll just like ice over the roads. And you're talking like one lane country roads, middle of nowhere, no signal. You slide off the road, you're going to be there for a while. You know, <laughs> um, but once you get into the valley, it's not too bad in the national park and stuff. I mean, yeah, you can drive slow, but it's it's those open roads in the middle of the plains that get sketchy. Yeah. So do you, so pretty much anyone who lives in Jackson, you're bedded down, winter down for from like November Most to people. March. <laughs> yeah, unless you're a wildlife photographer, then you'll uh, venture out to Yellowstone and make that trek it's it's like seven hours i think to the north end of yellowstone from jackson in the winter because all the inner park roads are closed so you have to go up through west yellowstone up to gardner basically like loop around through bozeman wow <laughs> i yep. can see that having been there i think that's the my biggest like misconception or just like just didn't understand the scale until i went there for the first time mm. and that was even in september but we ended up spending most of the time in our car looking around for wildlife and stuff. And so the hiking to driving ratio was not at all what I anticipated. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Yellowstone. That's Yellowstone. Great. We saw so much. Stuff. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of what I do here is driving mostly, honestly. Mm. Um, that makes sense. You know, my stories make it seem like I'm way deep in the wilderness sometimes. <laughs> When in reality, I'm tracking a bear a hundred yards off a road, you know, <laughs> it's like that's just how amazing. wild, that's just how wild Wyoming is. Wyoming is the kind of place where as soon as you step out of your car, you need bear spray. Mm. Hmm. I mean, we had ours on us the whole time and our bear sightings were phenomenal. I mean, the best sightings other than Churchill with polar bears. What did you see? Um, so solid grizzly and, um, so, you know, classic traffic jam on the side of the road. And yep. you know me, I made a ton of friends while I was there. So yep. um, 
we were down at you know the classic wolf spot and we had made some friends and they're like hey go about two miles up the road um they, as they were radioing to each other there's a grizzly and so we're like oh shit because we hadn't seen a grizzly yet and this was like day three or four that we were there so went up the road um and everyone around us had scopes and of course made friends with them and so i could look through their scope and we were watching as this massive grizzly bear was just going across you know this, the plain area right beside the river right up to a fly fisher and he had no idea that this bear was coming and we did so it was like drama like like yeah. a freaking drama show right there in front of us and we're like oh my god oh shit oh shit that grizzly's huge he's coming right at that guy and of course this guy was clearly a professional so he was just super chill relaxed didn't do anything just calmly watched the bear go he stayed in the water and the bear just walked right on past and so there wasn't a climactic ending to yeah. the scenario that we were building in our head as we were watching everything unfold um but no so that was it was nerve-wracking yeah it was insanely nerve-wracking when you yeah. just see like, I mean, a human that has no idea that there is a massive grizzly bear walking towards them yeah it was and this isn't katmai you know in katmai you're like oh there's a grizzly bear whatever let it walk <laughs> by here it's different these yeah. bears don't aren't quite as uh friendly as the cat my bears yeah and this was um not too long after we watched the same grizzly harass a whole bunch of buffalo i think just for shits and giggles because it clearly was not going to take down one of them um yeah but yeah so he was chasing the whole bison herd like up a massive hill and then he was done and then came down and that's when we were like oh my god there's a human there's a human there's a human (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was oh, man. pretty much the whole trip was just stopping off the side of the road and making friends with all the people who were looking at something amazing and it's like hey what are you looking at and uh, yeah some really cool yeah. sightings it's wild out here you know I, I mean my first bear sightings were all in alaska um i'm really blessed to have had that experience as my first bear sightings going to Katmai and stuff <laughs> but and denali actually my first bear ever was in denali but Coming out here, it's crazy how different the bear encounters are. Um, they just make your hair stand up so much more, you know, like they are way more intense. Like I had um, when I moved here back in October, uh, in the first two weeks I shot, um, I had 14 bear sightings in seven days. Jesus. Um, I was basically getting two bear sightings a day i would go out in the morning see a bear come back somewhere go back out in the afternoon see a bear and some of these sightings really opened my eyes to how different the environment here is um for grizzly bears in particular it's it's um it's it's you you have to be way way more careful here than you than you can be uh, you know in a place like katmai where it's so relaxed the bears are so habituated to human presence and don't associate them with food in any way, um, no food conditioning. Um, whereas here, you know, these are wild bears, never seen humans. Some may have been food conditioned, some may not have. You just you just don't know what kind of bear you're running into here. It's kind of like, you know, a Russian roulette of like, if you get a good bear or a bad bear. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a really great point. And, and you can tell that too, just like watching their behavior um, I mean, even like, okay, so polar bears are insanely intense and there was no way to get close to any of them when we were up in Churchill, but even those polar bears and their behavior, 
was very different. I mean, obviously, you know, there's lots of research on like the different intelligent levels of like polar bears and how insanely smart they are. But even their behavior was way different than the bears that had all of this, you know, plentiful food and um, Mm -hmm. just the way they were acting around. I mean, and we even saw some black bears, which is really cool as well. And Mm -hmm. they were, I think, I think what was really cool when I was there is to see such a healthy ecosystem with so many predators and how balanced they are and how they are behaving as they should be. So the black Mm -hmm. warrior bears were way more skittish because there's wolves and grizzlies and other things that can eat them. And so they were, at least from what I could tell, they were behaving more as like the meso predator level, you know, um, mm-hmm. versus top dog, as you know, in some other areas where there is nothing to take them down. So I thought that was insanely cool to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that was in Yellowstone, right? Yeah, that was all Yellowstone. Um, we didn't see any Grand Tetons. We didn't see um, any sort of like predator a big mammal other than like elk and stuff you know the classic i mean in colorado it's just so funny we're just like oh man it's a goddamn mule deer and you know so many people are stopped on the side of the road exactly and you get so excited when you go to places like yellowstone because everybody's like off the side of the road you're like oh my god what are they seeing i'm like it's a fucking deer (laughs) keep going (laughs) going. yeah which is so funny and yeah, living here in Jackson is even a level up from Colorado. The locals here will straight up get pissy at people because they're stopping to see moose. Because I mean, moose here, a good summer in Colorado, I'll see, you know, 10, 15 moose. You know, here I saw 10, 15 moose in like an hour one morning. <laughs> That's um, amazing. So it's like, it, it's 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 just like a, a, a level up, you know, and the locals here are like, oh, it's just a black bear. Ah, oh, it's just a news. Like, ah, oh, come on, move, move along now. We have places to go. <laughs> if we're in, I'm sure like the first couple of weeks of that, you're like, what are you saying? Like, that's a fucking black bear. And now, and now I'm slowly becoming one of them. I'm like, oh, it's just a news. Like, let's keep, let's keep looking for foxes or wolves or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. No, I still love the moose. Some of my favorite animals to photograph. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So big and pretty in contrast with the you know, just natural environment and stuff, especially in the snow. Awesome. Well, let's take it back a step. So yeah, we are talking about right now and what your life currently is, but having known you for years, this is not at all what your reality was just a few months ago. So let's take it back. Let's take it way back. Um, Cause I think it would be super cool to explore your journey, you know, having seen you go through some pretty big hardships and how you are turning that into something amazing in my eyes. Mm -hmm. So where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? And let's just start there. We're going way back. We're going way back. (laughs) (laughs) Got to put the pieces together. All right. Got to get this puzzle piece together. I like this. I like this. Um, So I kind of had an interesting, um, diverse and international upbringing. I was born in Paris, um, moved to Miami when I was two months old, um, was raised in a French household. French was my first language. Then I learned Spanish second growing up in Miami. Um, went to a fully French elementary school where I had one English class. So I like started learning English there. Um, middle school is where I perfected my English. Um, so yes, English is my third language. Um, just grew up 
in Miami off the coast on an island called Biscayne. So I was always outside, even though I grew up in Miami, people associate that as like a big city, chaotic. You go one mile in any direction from where I grew up, there was water. Um, so I was fully immersed in the uh, marine ecosystem as a kid. Um, matter of fact, I wanted to be a marine biologist. I feel like so many kids. Um, but um, yeah, I grew up fishing, um, kayaking, uh, scuba diving, uh, free diving, just basically anything that involved me being on the water, kite surfing. Um, but really what kicked off my passion for, um, wildlife, I would say is fishing, um, which is kind of ironic because in this case, you know, it's, you're, it's like hunting, right? You're just catching it to eat it, which is basically what I did, but it really opened my eyes to, uh, the diversity of the ecosystems underwater. I, as a kid, I would like literally like my, my bathroom book was a fish identification book where I was just reading every single species of fish in Florida where they live, how to catch them, what their diet is. Um, I was obsessed. Um, and then um, did I even did my middle school science fair project on um, the studying the growth rate of cobia um, in an aquaculture system as compared to the growth rate of chickens. Um, and I did this with the University of Miami in eighth grade and um, placed really highly in that science uh, science fair that year. Um, so I, I was pretty on track to becoming a scientist when I was a kid and I didn't get into my high school of choice, um, and ended up going to my home school where unfortunately the science program was not quite the best. Um, we'll just leave it at that. Um, and, and, um, focused all my attention and interest on other things, my, another side of my passion, which is entrepreneurship. Um, so I started my first business. Um, when I was in high school, um, it was a fishing camp for kids, summer fishing camp. I just wanted to take kids out, um, you know, open their eyes to the ecosystems that they live in on this island on Key Biscayne and everything within them through fishing. Um, and so we won, my friend George and I won a grant from the Coral Gables Chamber of Commerce to start this business. And, um, which was really cool at 14 or 15, however old I was, you know, to, to win $2,000 to start a business. It was like, whoa. Um, and we were stoked because that just means we got to spend it all on fishing gear. So like it was going towards the business, but it was still fishing gear. So we were pretty <laughs> happy campers. Um, and so, you know, I continued, my passion for the outdoors never died throughout this. I, I focused on business more as I went into college. I studied finance. Um, you know, never really reconnected with my love for science that I had as a kid, though I always maintained my love for the outdoors. Um, throughout college, I was bringing friends out to some of the most remote places in North Florida that um, many of them had never heard about. I had never heard about. I was, I'm just a psycho and I do an insane amount of research on places I want to visit um, and found some really, really beautiful places. I mean, I know people talk shit about about Florida a lot, but there's some truly incredible nature out there. Um, and uh, so I did that throughout college. would organize big groups of friends, take them out into nature. Um, I always loved just being outside and bringing friends into new environments in the outdoors. Um, and then when I finished my degree, uh, I had a job offer, ironically, to work for Burger King, where I had done an internship at their headquarters in Miami in finance. Um, really good job offer, really well paid, moving stipends, the whole nine yards, you know, straight out of college, could have lived at home, saved a bunch of money, um, 
but something didn't feel right. And uh, I decided not to do it. I turned down the job offer and I stayed in college for another year and told myself I was going to study climatology. Um, so I, my parents were not stoked about that, by the way. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they were not. They were like, why are you not taking all this money? Like, this is a good job. Like, it'll set you up for success, blah, blah, blah. I was like, nope, I'm not going to sell my soul to the corporate world. That is not who I am. And that is the first biggest and best decision I made in my life um, in a series of biggest and best decisions, more to come. Um, so I stayed, studied another year of climatology, did all my prereqs so I could do a master's in climatology. Applied to CU Boulder, swore I was going to get in. I had great recommendations, great grades, you know, everything I wanted. But I think my research focus wasn't quite there um, to be accepted into a master's. I kind of have, I kind of had everything but that specific research interest. Um, and so I didn't get in, and that kind of bummed me out. But I decided, you know what, I'll just move to Colorado, nonetheless. So. Left college, moved to Colorado. Um, I always loved Colorado. I had been a bunch of times before and uh, moved out to Colorado and said, you know what? Screw it. I'll figure it out. Um, so I moved out to Colorado, still had the job offer from Burger King on the table that my parents were like, are you sure you don't want to consider this <laughs> job offer? Like, it's been a year and they're still offering you the same amount of money. Like, I would take it. And I was like, nope, sorry. I'm going to Colorado. And I worked at REI for the first six months there. Um, and ironically, my dream job moving to Colorado before I even moved there was working for NatHab, where I met you. Um, and uh, a lot of crazy connections happened there. You know, people who I knew, friends that I knew from college who worked there, Courtney, shout out to Courtney, um, and uh, uh, a few mentors of mine in Colorado who happened to play soccer with, you know, a bunch of the execs up at NatHab, Ben and Mark and the whole the whole crew. And so I ended up in NatHab, and that was a that was a great experience, you know, because it opened my eyes to the world of conservation. Um, you know, I had always approached nature from such a playful standpoint, because to me, nature is my playground. It's it's where I love to be. It's what fills my soul. Um, you know, and I had never thought of the ability for us to preserve it simply through inspiring people to love the wilderness more. Um, you know, I had always thought of it as like, oh, science and research. But um, what really opened my eyes in that have is how you can incorporate business into a powerful tool to um, achieve great things in conservation. I'm sure with your and business so background, really that was really... Like it, like the dots connected for you having come from that more like entrepreneurship, business finance side too. You're like, wow, I understand this more from the business side, which that's, I bet that was really eye-opening. Yeah, it was awesome. And um, I really admired um, Matt Hab's vision, Ben's vision, which was to um, give people the opportunity to see the wilderness and see the wild in a way that they haven't seen it before, whether that be you know, by going to a beautiful place or by seeing an animal that they've always wanted to see and um, making a connection with that animal and falling in love, so to say, with that animal, which then inevitably inspires um, action towards conservation. So that's, you know, th that sort of idea. And I started connecting dots with other businesses I admire, like Patagonia, 
um, which does so much for conservation or for just, you know, our planet in general, sustainability, conservation. Um, And I really started to adopt this perspective that like, I believe in for-profit business models that contribute directly to conservation because I've seen countless nonprofits who are just constantly begging for money constantly. And it's, it's, it, it doesn't, I feel like it doesn't convey the right message to me. Whereas if you, you can run a for profit business model and um, provide a product or a service that people are genuinely stoked on and do great things with all that profit you're making, you know, it's not because you're making profit that you have to keep it all. And so that's kind of the approach I, I started taking. And, and um, my time in that hub was great. I mean, eternally thankful for that, for all the great people I've met, such as yourself. And, um, and, and most importantly, for two trips in particular, which changed my life. Um, so coming back, starting to come back full circle here to where I am today, um, two trips I had the, the blessing of going on while I was at NatHab. Uh, first was Alaska. Um, Ultimate Alaska was an incredible trip. You know, we just did the entire tour of Alaska, Denali, um, Kenai Fjords, Katmai, everything in between. Um, and that's where I first used a camera. That was two and a half years ago. Um, I borrowed a crappy Canon point and shoot camera that we had at the office and, uh, put it to work. And I, and, uh, my guy, Justin Gibson, huge shout out to Justin Gibson, um, bear biologist in Katmai National Park and, um, legendary NatHab guide, um, put me on his Olympus camera, uh, while we were in Katmai watching bears. And instantly I was like, wow, like this was the first time I had used, you know, a real lens. Actually, he put me, the first lens he put me on is a lens I just bought. It's, uh, the 300 millimeter F4 from Olympus, um, prime lens. And I started taking pictures of these bears and I was like, this is so powerful. Like these images say so much and have, and have so much potential to like inspire people. And I just, I just loved it. I've, I've always been a very geospatial thinker, very spatial person. And, and so that, that trip really opened my mind to, first of all, true wilderness, because, you know, I had been to a lot of beautiful places, but to experience true wilderness with the amount of wildlife that is in Alaska is truly next level. Um, and then the second trip that really started pushing me over the edge to make these huge life changes here um, was Greenland. Um, that was a year and a half ago. Um, and I've always been fascinated by the by the, art, the polar regions, which is kind of interesting for a Florida kid who wanted to be a marine biologist growing up. Um, but you know, there's this feeling of solitude and um, vastness and wilderness that you find in these far high latitude regions that you just don't get uh, in lower latitudes and tropic in the tropics and the equators, and you just feel so much more out there. Um, which is really something I I look for um, in my relationship with nature. I just like being out there. Um, experiencing nature in its entirety in its true, true wilderness. Um, and Greenland, um, I mean, that was a trip that opened my eyes in a different way. I kind of had like a, a an enlightenment, so to say, in Greenland. Yeah, um, you did. 
you know, just a, a lot of really weird coincidences, comments from guests on the trip. Um, what were some of those? You know, found my, um, you know, I had, uh, first of all, the, the craziest thing that happened was finding my doppelganger who, uh, one of the clients, uh, Christina Grajales, um, who I'll send this episode to, um, lovely art director out of New York City. Um, she was reading this book called The Ice at the End of the World. And we were sitting down at breakfast. I mean, picture this. We're in the middle of nowhere in Greenland in a base tent, base camp tent. Five-hour boat ride from a 2,000-person town, which is the largest town in an area the size of France. Um, so you're really in the middle of nowhere. Like, don't get hurt out there. Um, <laughs> And, and she, she's, she's sitting at breakfast reading this book and out of nowhere, she goes, oh, Arthur. and she, she pulls me over and shows me the front page of this chapter. And sure enough, I actually have it right here. Um, yes. Show it, please. Sure. Sure enough. This, this, um, picture looks exactly like me. And so we, we, I showed it to my family. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's me. It's you. <laughs> <laughs> um nude rasmussen is his name he was a famous um arctic explorer dog sled um master across greenland for some of the first times ever um just like a true adventure and and um you know she made a few comments later in that trip about like hey arthur like you should you should really like be a photographer or a guide or something and and a lot of, there was just a lot of these comments that would just come kind of out of the blue where like, I wasn't, I was just there to have a good time. It was my dream trip and things just started happening and making me feel, um, really weird things, almost like panic attacks to the point where I was like, what is going on? And, um, came back from this trip and kind of just like pondered it all after such a beautiful experience. I mean, all of the, you know panic attacks aside this this was a uh an amazing trip and um i took so much out of it but coming back i was i just felt something different and i was like like i need to make a change and i remember the day i came back into the office um in tears because i was so overwhelmed with emotions from this trip um i went to my boss's boss's office and i was like Hey, I have something I need to talk to you about. And she's like, please don't tell me you're quitting. And I was <laughs> like, no. <laughs> I was like, no, but um, a matter of fact, I would like to become a guide. You know, I would like to pursue guiding and um, set that as my first, first goal. And so I was filled with all this inspiration and, you know, desire to seek a life where I could share the outdoors with people um, in a way that is more wholesome. Um, one of the biggest takeaways from Greenland was, um, um, our guides, Rachel Sullivan Lord and, and, um, Drew Goodman had us write a, um, letter back to ourselves from Greenland. And this letter that I wrote back to myself that I still have today, um, sort of became my life goal. Um, and so I'll read it to you guys here since I have it up. Dear Arthur from Greenland, let your soul live free for it is not within the confines of routine and the pursuit of freedom through riches that you will find happiness in this world. 
Seek the wild open spaces filled with wonder and inspiration and strive to share these pure places with others, inspiring change in the most honest of ways. Wow. And that so, gave me goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wrote this letter to myself and I received it two months later or something, mail from Greenland to the U.S. is snail mail. And, uh, and, and that has really been my guiding um, guiding principles. Like your North star. Yeah. And so, um, to bring it back full circle here, cause I've been ranting for a while. Uh, no, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's been beautiful. We, uh, we, um, you know, coronavirus hit in March. Um, things started changing quickly, but you know, th- this is all a blessing in disguise. So you know, I got laid off in March, first wave of coronavirus, tons of layoffs, the travel industry took a huge hit. I was heartbroken. Um, I think we all were, you were there. Um, you I was know, in the we same room. Like we, <laughs> yep. Uh, we felt like our family was ripped away from our hands in a way because we loved the people we worked with so much. Um, and it just felt very sudden and abrupt and, and, and brutal and, and, and I was just lost, you know, so I, I, we dealt with this layoff and I was like, crap, well, what do I do next? Like, am I going to have enough money to live? Am I going to have to work at, you know, like the grocery store and make my bills? Like I didn't, you know, I was, it was, it was a freaky time, the beginning of COVID and, um, a few other things happened that set me up for this. Um, first I got laid off. Um, then, uh, I dealt with the breakup with my girlfriend of four years the next week. Um, and then quarantine started. So in a matter of seven days, um, lost my job, lost my friends because you couldn't really see anyone. It was COVID. We didn't know what was going on. Lost my girlfriend. Um, and then was stuck at home with nothing to do. So, you know, life came to a screeching halt. I basically hit a brick wall. It's how it felt. Um, and I was... I hit rock bottom. I was like, literally nothing could be possibly worse except for like, God forbid, like one of my family members were to get sick or something. Thankfully, health was always there for me um, in 2020. And, uh, but it was tough. It was a really rough time. And it set me back in the, for six months. I was in a dark place, um, truly dark place. Um, and I started um, seeing a life coach, which um, I d- I had done therapy before, you know, just because I, my grandma's there. So I've always admired it and it's, it's, it's potential to really help people move forward. But I, w- I was searching for something more holistic and more uh, integrative towards my career and towards my other aspirations of relationships, you know, not just personal internal um, struggles. And um, fast forward a few months to August and my life coach tells me, I was telling him about my friend who was my guide um, in Greenland, Rachel, who lived up in Montana by Glacier National Park. And since the beginning of quarantine was like, hey, you should come up and visit, like, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, what are you doing? Go up there. Like, just just go. Just like, fucking go. Leave Colorado. Like, go do something. Stop sitting at home. And so for the first time ever, ironically, and this hit me when I was driving out, for the first time ever, I set off on this adventure alone i had never truly spent other than days fishing um you know i had never been truly alone in the wild 
um, just me, myself, and I, and my thoughts, and no one to share it with, which is kind of weird because you love sharing these moments with people, but it forced me to kind of have a different approach. Um, first of all, in terms of safety, um, which maybe I didn't do the best job at that, but I'm alive, <laughs> so there's that. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and then second of all, um, just in terms of like, you know, the thoughts that go through my head, because there's so much more you time, time to think. And so I drove all the way up to, uh, the Northern end of Montana, spent a week up there, um, with my friend, Rachel, all we had an awesome time. And then over the course of the month, I road trip back down towards Colorado. Um, one of my last stops being Jackson, um, where I had the opportunity to, um, photograph, um, Grizzly 399 and her four cubs for the first time ever, um, where I had the opportunity to, uh, take a hike in the Tetons and see literally six moose in the span of like two miles, um, where I had the opportunity to go fishing in Dubois and some of the most pristine waters in the entire country, probably second only to Alaska in terms of how good the fishing is here. Um, and, um, some friends of mine that, uh, who run a flash shop down in Dubois, um, were all moving to Jackson for the winter and they were like, Hey, you should move to Jackson with us. And I was like, huh. I didn't really think anything of it at the time. It kind of like, you know, caught my interest. And then I was like, you know, that's just a fantasy. And then they kept saying it. They're like, move to Jackson with us, move to Jackson with us. And the more I thought about it, I was like, well, my lease in Colorado ends at the end of September. Um, it was, all, it was basically early September by that point. Um, and, um, by the time I got back to Colorado, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Why not? Like I have friends in Colorado, which, you know, I've always been a huge lover of my friends. I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm a very extroverted person. And, uh, but I was like, I have friends in Wyoming now too. You know, I have literally, I, there was like six or seven people I already knew who were going to live in Jackson. So I was like, why wouldn't I just do this for a winter? See where it goes. So, um, I, I subleased my place in Colorado, um, and moved out here. Uh, and I've been living here since October. So that's, that's how I got to Jackson. That, that is a long story, but you know, um, a lot, a lot of, crazy decisions. And I would say the three most important decisions along the way were, um, the first decision I mentioned, which was, um, I forgot what that was. What was the first decision? I mean, Burger King. Uh, Burger King. Yeah. Burger <laughs> King saying no to that job, huge decision. Second decision was moving to Colorado and, um, really pursuing a job with NatHab, which really opened my eyes to so much. And I met so many amazing and inspiring people who I hope to continue this relationship um, with for a while. And then the third decision was the most spontaneous of all of the decisions was in a matter of seven days saying, screw it, I'm leaving Colorado, which I loved so dearly, had no intention of moving by the, when I started this road trip back in August. And here I am today um living in wyoming it was a little bit nerve-wracking i was like am i doing the right thing you know like i don't know i was just like screw it i'll figure it out you know i had no job my unemployment was running out i said whatever i've done this before i'll figure it out and so i moved out here um and 
started taking pictures and I guess the the rest is history, we could say. <laughs> yeah. No, I remember that. I still remember when we had that phone call and you're like, so I'm moving to Jackson. And I'm like, that's fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember that because it was so, because we talked a long time, you know, through COVID and kept in touch and everything. And I still remember when you told me that and I'm just like, get your ass in your forerunner and go, <laughs> like, go get out one of here. Of, um, one of the, one of the people who, who he probably doesn't know this, but helped me make that leap the most is Mike Schroen, who we also worked with. Um, when I mentioned it to him, I was like, Hey, like I'm thinking about moving to Jackson. He's like, man, <laughs> like with like 12 A's in the text, do you know? <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, I really don't want to see you leave, but you would kill the game out there, man. And I was like, that says it all. You know, when, when your friends are like, I don't want to see you go, but like, that sounds like a good decision. That's, that's what really helped me make that, that call. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been easily the best decision in my life. Awesome. So now that we're back to where we started this conversation, yeah. we've gone full circle. <laughs> so, which is beautiful. That was perfect. You hit like every single question I was going to ask you and I didn't even need to ask them. You just said it. It was great. Um, <laughs> so, so you are what I would call now like a wildlife photographer, or conservation photographer, whatever title you want to give yourself. So what strategies did you take to enter a pretty saturated field? You know, I love Instagram. It's my favorite social media platform for sure. And there are so many phenomenal wildlife photographers out there. So how did you get in? What was your strategies? How did you start to build a platform yourself in something completely new that you just even found out about like two years ago? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so you know, I always, after my trip to Alaska, I was into photography. Um, I started taking pictures consistently after Alaska, um, bought a camera before I even got back. I bought an expensive lens before I even had a body. I bought it in Anchorage before flying out because it's tax free up there. <laughs> and so I took pictures for, I guess the first important step is taking pictures, right? Going out to places I loved in Colorado, the sand dunes. Crested Butte, um, obviously, but on my trips to Greenland, and I had done some personal trips to Portugal, all over Europe, just shooting as much as I could um, in in places that inspired me. I think something important to know with photography is is you have to be truly passionate and you have to truly love your subjects um, to be able to capture them in a way that's impactful and that makes people see them the way you do. If you don't really truly care about your subjects and you're just trying to get cool photos, you're not going to have that magic. Um, so my number one advice is try and keep that magic, keep that spark, keep, keep, keep something that you're deeply, deeply passionate about, um, in your photography. Um, so after all this practice moving out here, um, I had, um, been inspired by a few uh, photographers, both big name photographers, um, you know, famous not geo photographers or whatever, um, who opened my eyes to, to really cool photography. Um, but more importantly, seeing um, people my age um, 
getting into photography and becoming successful over time. And one of my closest friends now, um, Brooke Bartleson, she's on Instagram at Brooke Little Bear, um, who I had been following for two years. Um, I started following her back in Colorado after she liked a picture of me eating shit, trying to learn a 360 on a snowboard. And I was like, Brooke Little Bear, that's a cool name. So I checked her out and I loved her work. Um, yeah, followed beautiful. her and start, started, started sending her DMs and stuff. And was like, hey, like, blah, 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 whatever. We, we were chatting back and forth for like two years. We're like, all right, let's meet up this weekend because she lived in Silverthorne, right where we had our ski house uh, for NetHab. And, uh, and we never really met up. And when I moved out to Jackson, I mean, this is just like a classic example of life setting you up right when you need, right when it's, it's right, right when you need something. Um, maybe two weeks after I moved here, Brooke was coming up to shoot here in Jackson Hole. And I was like, hey, let's hang out. I'm here. Um, <laughs> and so we did. And we had, we had an epic day. Like for a first day ever shooting together, I don't think you could possibly ask for a better sequence of wildlife events. I mean, started our morning with like elk or moose separately. Um, then we met up um, roadside in the park with like a black bear cub climbing in a berry bush, literally five feet off the road. And we had like a whole half hour with this little bear. Um, no pun intended that I ran into a little bear with uh, a little, little bear. bear. <laughs> that was that was how we met, and then and then we drove up to Yellowstone. We were just like, screw it, let's go up to Yellowstone and look for great gray owls, where we had an incredible great gray owl photo uh, photo shoot, um, where this owl even came down and landed on Brooke's head at one point. Um, Shut up! Literally flew down, I unbaited like wild owl, wild owl. This owl was sitting. We were in a in a um, not too far from, from the lake. And, um, this owl flies down from its perch straight towards me. I was standing next to Brooke and then mid flight switches focus to Brooke. And I see it lower itself onto her head. And I was like, this is not real. Like what is going on? Like Harry Potter right now or something like, (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So just a crazy day. And so I would say the most important thing has been my network. Honestly, I just started talking to a lot of people. I still, I mean, Brooke was the first, but there's a bunch of others, um, other photographers, um, in the area from Salt Lake or like surrounding areas. I mean, the list is long. Savannah Rose wildlife is great. Um, uh, Grizzly Manchild, Peter Mangolds is his full name. Uh, also an inspiration. He was a Yellowstone Ranger, uh, people like Liddy bug, blah, blah, blah. The list goes on. There's a ton of awesome photographers here. So the first step for me in really breaking through was just honestly becoming friends with these photographers and seeing what it was about here and how people approached wildlife photography and kind of entering it on my tippy toes, you know, observing slightly had imposter syndrome. Um, but you know, getting a feel for it and then, um, really just putting myself in a position to get these images where I think the first two months I came out here, I literally went out and shot every single day. Like there was not a single day where I did not go out and take pictures. Um, And that, you know, led me to more and more connections through local newspapers who started resharing my photos through um, conservation organizations like Jackson Hole Alliance. um, um, And then reconnecting with old friends um, from NatHab, you know, guides uh, such as Justin uh, Drew Hamilton, uh, who lives up in Alaska, uh, amazing photographer and conservationist, uh, has been 
instrumental in the fight against Pebble Mine. Um, yes, he has. So really just like strengthening my network was, was the number one thing I think I, I've done um, to really push my, my career forward in photography. Yeah, and I would say you have just being on, you know, Instagram and you being amazing and introducing me to some of your friends. Like I already am completely in love with Brooke and <laughs> we've only DM'd <laughs> each other. So I can't wait to have her on as well. Um, she's probably going to be stoked to hear this episode and that we're talking about her like the <laughs> whole time. Uh, shout out Brooke. Shout out Brooke. Shout out Brooke. She's like, I absolutely love when I listen to your episodes because every time they say Brooke, it feels like they're talking to me. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, you're like the best thing ever. And we both found out that our birthdays are less than a week apart. So we both are Sagittarius and like all these coincidences. Same. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I don't Sad know if anybody squads. believes in astrology or anything, but. I don't know. I think there's something, <laughs> there's something there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. So, okay. So something happened very recently and I would love for you to talk about why this was such a big deal um, and really bring to light. Cause I think what happened gives wildlife photography and wildlife photographers a very bad rep. And so I know you know what I'm talking about. And if you want to go ahead and say what happened um, and what should have been done differently and how we can help prevent things like this in the future, because I mean, this show is rewildology. The last thing we mm -hmm. want to do is take a wild animal and make it not wild. So Let's talk about what happened. Yeah. And um, let me just say that I love the name Rewildology because you're, I mean, the way I interpret that title is just like, let's turn this planet wild again. And that's, yep. um, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. And exactly what this um, event relates back to. Um, so I think we're seeing a, um, a shift in, in wildlife photography from kind of like the old ways and how a lot of famous wildlife photographers became well-known in a world without social media, without public accountability. Um, photographers like Tom Magelson, Paul Nicklin, David Yarrow, um, who became really successful because of solely one thing, beautiful images of animals, right? And there's no denying that these photographers get beautiful images of animals. Um, the question then is how these images are captured. So to kind of run you guys through what happened, um, two weeks ago, um, there's an area here in the park called Coulter Bay where um, it's known to have a lot of foxes. Um, and so I sent my friend Tiffany, Tiffany Taxes on Instagram um, out there because she's getting into wildlife photography here. She just graduated from college in Florida and has been falling in love with the region. Um, and sent her out there. I was like, Hey, you should go. There's been some foxes out there. Just go check it out. Um, so she goes and she basically what happened that day is she was around some foxes. She was around a fox, um, and started taking pictures of it from a distance. And, um, maybe 50 to 100 yards away out on the frozen lake, there was a stylized shoot going on. Um, you know, a bunch of like Western outfits and 
she didn't pay much attention to it. She thought it was a little weird, you know, um, but, you know, she didn't pay much attention to it. And eventually she started noticing um, this fox um, making its way towards um, one of the crew members of, of this, this party. Um, and um, a second fox showed up and noticed that there was a man um, who I'll talk about later um, dropping food from a plastic bag. And then um, the foxes made their way, obviously, closer to the food. Um, and eventually, um, the photographer who wrapped up his stylized shoot laid on the ground. And the man started uh, rustling a bag and dropping items from behind the photographer. So as to lure the foxes in towards the photographer so he can get a really close, wide-angle shot of a beautiful animal. Um, and so she, um, you know, kindly asked them to um, let the animals interact naturally because there were two foxes and it's breeding season, so um, or mating season. So um, she wanted she wanted to see these foxes interact, you know, because you could see some phenomenal interactions between two foxes playing, fighting, you know, mating, doing their thing, and she wanted to capture that. And instead, these guys were. Um, baiting these animals with food and um she was basically shut down and ignored um these guys didn't respond and one of the guys who was at the incident um who was the guide in in this situation or we later found out um said the words to to the fox said to the fox you better do what we tell you to or else i'll take out my shotgun and shoot you um and tiffany was took that as a low-key um you know it's kind of a threat, indirect threat, like, hey, we have a gun, just like get your shots and leave kind of thing. Um, and so she left and she called me on the way home, you know, in tears and shock. She's like, what just happened? Like, there are these guys and like they, they were baiting them and then they like threatened the fox with a gun. Like, who would do such a thing? Blah, blah, blah. She had no idea who this was. She was just like, I'm like, did you get any pictures? She's like, yeah, I did. The only name I heard was David. And so I was like, interesting, because I know that the famous photographer David Yarrow is in town right now, um, and he has an existing bad rep for using um, unethical practices such as game farms where um, wild animals such as cougars and um, or mountain lions, however you want to refer to them as, um, uh, and wolves and uh, you know, a bunch of other predators are kept in terrible conditions solely to be used for photo shoots. Um, and he was recently exposed three months ago for engaging in some extremely unethical practices around wild African elephants, which endangered both the lives of his models and the elephants. And, um, and so I was like, could it be? And so we looked it up and sure enough, um, it was David Yarrow. And so, you know, a lot of people are injecting doubt into this conversation because they're like, oh, well, like she has the incentive to like take him down. And the fact is, she had no, no idea who this was. She was going to report this incident no matter what. And it just so happened to be a photographer with almost half a million followers on Instagram um, who's made a killing selling prints. You know, someone who could be such a powerful voice in conservation. Um, and so, um, 
what's wrong with that? Um, you know, a lot of people, I get a lot of messages on Instagram, like, what is wrong? Like, I got an honest question, like, hey, dude, like, maybe I'm just stupid. But like, what's the problem with feeding wild foxes? And like, I, I just think we live in a world so disconnected from the wild and from, um, you know, nature that like people don't know these things. And it's okay, we just have to educate them. Um, and so um, what's wrong with that is that when you feed a wild animal um like a fox you are um habituating them conditioning them to being fed by humans um it's called food conditioning and i want to strike an important difference between food conditioning and human habituation being animals being used to being around humans is not necessarily a bad thing if they do not associate humans with food if they just see them as humans now where it gets slippery is where animals start relying and associating humans to food um and so um you know th there's a quote that's that goes a fat animal is a dead animal which is um beyond true <laughs> right so like in the, the most obvious example of why it's bad to feed an animal is with a bear if a bear gets into human food and gets used to seeing being fed human food anytime he sees a human he's going to think I'm getting fed. And if he doesn't, he might have adverse reactions. He could hurt someone. Um, he could hurt himself. He could hurt his young ones by getting too close to roads, et cetera, et cetera. With a fox, it's the same thing. Obviously, it's not a bear. It's not going to like eat someone. But, you know, a fox could bite someone. A fox could um, get killed on the road. It could put its little ones in danger. Same kind of reasoning. And so to see a famous wildlife photographer engage in such blatant malpractice is so disheartening um, because you can get such incredible photos without doing these things. Um, and Which you you've know, shown. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, and so th this was this was a really um, concerning event, and it's still ongoing. We have a petition online. Um, it's a link tree. It's link tree slash advocate for wildlife um, uh, petition to get David Yar banned from all national parks. We have several news media outlets covering the story. Um, David Yar has, of course, denied that he was feeding the foxes. He said that he was dropping snow while his um, fixer, Rosie, who was the one dropping the food, claimed that he was dropping cigarette paper, which their stories don't match up. If you were dropping cigarette paper, that's littering in a national park. And regardless of what you're dropping, you're still baiting the animal one way or another. The thought process behind the, in the, the psychology in the animal is the same, where it's associating getting closer to humans for what it thinks is food or whatever, you know? Um, and so, um, unfortunately, very sadly, two days ago, this fox was put down. Um, this was a fox that had already been fed. Um, you know, it was already, um, being targeted by the park service because it was already, you know, very hab habituated and food conditioned. Um, and it's just such a shame that, the last straw comes at the hands of a wildlife photographer of all people. You know, you would think it would be Florida man or yeah, something. Yeah, some, some person um, who's completely ignorant that it's the tourists that feed animals, which is a very right. big problem. Um, but right. at least at least they have ignorance. Like, at least they're naive. Right. Like, so um, kind of to the point of this story is like, I think there is a collective shift happening right now in the wildlife photography community 
away from these sort of ancient ways. And I'm not here to roast any famous wildlife photographers, but the truth is a lot of these famous wildlife photographers, Tom Angleson, Paul Nicklin, David Yarrow, have engaged in unethical practices. Um, you know, Tom Angleson has engaged in game farms. Um, I don't know any details on Paul Nicklin, but I wouldn't doubt that he's done some shady shit. Um, you know, and I think there's, it's, it's a really great time to be in wildlife photography because there's this collective shift happening. And I think there's a ton of awesome, passionate, conservation-focused, ethical wildlife photographers out there. And I named some of them at the beginning of this episode, Brooke and Savannah and um, Peter. And there, there's a ton of them. And I think um, together we are stronger. I think as a wildlife photography community, we have the power to make profound changes. Um, you know, someone I look up to a lot for that is Drew Hamilton, who I touched on earlier in this episode, um, who has been instrumental in the fight against Pebble Mine, which is an ongoing fight. Um, and I think, I think it's an exciting time because we're sort of, you know, putting the oldies to rest, so to say, and, and putting these antiquated practices to rest. Um, and setting a new standard out there. And, and through that, and I think through social media and through public accountability and through continuing to inspire people through powerful images and videos of, wild, of wildlife, we'll be able to achieve a new higher standard and inspire more people towards conservation, inspire more people to, to reconnect with the wild um, and, and to fall in love once again with the wild. That was a perfect recap of that. And I did not know that that fox was put down. But Two days ago. That's really sad. Yeah, they, they published an article yesterday. Which that is the perfect example. I mean, that is the example of a fed animal as a dead animal. Having studied carnivores and predators so long myself, that is a major problem and one of the biggest issues of, or like reasons for human wildlife conflict is because these it's, it's not, I mean, it's not normally, but it's, it's quite often, you know, like a predator or something that has an actual dangerous, just, just being in its presence can be dangerous because, so, you know, even a fox, mm -hmm. you're like, Oh, it's just a little fox. Well, one, mm -hmm. this can bite people. Those can take, you know, domestic pets. Like there's mm -hmm. a lot of cascading effects, even with just something as tiny as a fox, it gets way scarier, way hairier when we're talking about tigers, when we're talking about bears, when we're talking about these other creatures where there's, I mean, like, for example, you know, in Asia and stuff, like they have to remove man eating tigers like that exists. That's a thing. Mm -hmm. And so just bringing this more to light of why a fed animal is a dead animal. And the more people that travel around, um, I hope they get this message that do not litter, do not do anything to bait an animal, do not do I mean, because even like, for example, um, La, Lee and I, one Christmas, we were staying in Grand Lake, you know, on the other side of Rocky mm -hmm. Mountain National Park. And there was this fox that kept coming around town. And the locals were like devastated, sad about this fox, because when the tourists were in town for the summer, they would always feed it. And so this fox was completely food conditioned to be in Grand Lake. But the locals knew better. So... Mm -hmm whenever then it would just say around the winter time 
and would stay around the people thinking it was going to get fed. So it completely lost its natural abilities to be a wild fox because it was so food mm-hmm. conditioned to all the tourists that were in town and they were mm-hmm. devastated. I don't know that fox probably still isn't alive, I would imagine. But that is a perfect example of just two days ago that this fox had to be put down um, mm-hmm. because of ignorant people not letting the wild be wild. And just like you said, that's what the show is all about. Let's keep things wild, keep these things pristine and beautiful and do what we can to protect it. So, yeah, I'm really glad. Yeah, I think I think it's kind of hit the nail on the head there. It's it's about keeping things wild. Wild animals are as cute as they might be, you know, um, they are wild and it's important that we treat them as so and we respect that and we give them all the distance they need when when we're around them that we don't interfere with their routines um in any way um i think that's something people don't really think about um and again to really to really drill this point home because i think it's important to distinguish once again between food conditioning and human habituation you have food conditioning um which we've explained pretty well versus human habituation um such as the bears in Katmai National Park, who are so used to seeing humans, but have never associated them with food. And in all of the history of this national park, I don't think there's been a single attack from a from a brown bear on a human, even though these bears are constantly around humans all summer long. And I think that's really an important distinction to make that people don't really think about. They're like, oh, well, they're used to being around humans nonetheless. It's like, yes. But are they food conditioned? It's like if you hand feed a moose. Um, I heard a story about a lady that hand fed a moose in Canada or something, and that moose had to be put down because, like, more people get attacked from moose every year than bears. Surprisingly enough, a lot of people don't know that. But um, yeah, it's it's really important to keep that distinction between human habituation and food conditioning. Um, which is why, you know, using bird feeders is okay. Or like dumping roadkill at a dump site for wolves to come find later is okay because they're not associating that with humans. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, thank you for, thank you for bringing that up. That's, that's a really important topic right now. It's an ongoing fight. Um, once again, it's the link tree is backslash advocate for wildlife. Uh, we're doing everything we can to collect petitions to, um, ban David Yar from National Park so that at least if he keeps getting pictures using game farms, we know where he's getting his photos, but we can't have that kind of behavior in national parks here. Um, you know, he's bound to hurt more animals at this rate. And just also to people who um, aren't as in the know as your friend, like, thank God it was her that saw mm-hmm. You know what oh, I yeah. mean? <laughs> like, it could have been any, I mean, luckily right now, this is not the tourist season up in Yellowstone, but I mean, it could have just been like a random tourist that have been like, you know, like, Hey, that's kind of weird. I don't know what they're doing, but meh, I'm just going to go on and find something else to go look at, you know, but it was her that captured the moment and knew that how wrong it was, especially a, like a pretty serious threat on top of that. Like, gosh, I'm so glad she got a hold of you. And there's also one more thing that I want to say about um, human habituation, because I think that some people might, um, if they've seen any photos of like gorilla treks and stuff, 
So mm-hmm. in a lot of those situations um, where animals have been intentionally human habituated, those are done by like extremely trained teams that are scientists that mm-hmm. know these animals, like they know these animals so well, their biology, their behaviors, how to handle themselves, um, that it's, it's, it's remarkable, it's remarkable. And I, while you were talking about that, I was thinking about the gorillas the whole time. Um, and that being a perfect example of doing it properly, these animals have never been, they do not associate, you know, food with humans. I don't even think you can have anything other than water on you when you're doing like the gorilla treks or, you know, other, um, wildlife type encounters. And the rules are insanely strict on these kinds of places where you do have an opportunity to see wildlife a little bit closer up for animals that have been human habituated that aren't in a captive setting. So I also want to like throw that in there as well, because I'm sure that people have probably seen some photos of Mm. humans with gorillas in the wild. Mm. It's like, well, what is that about? And that's a great example of um, it being done the right way and why it's so goddamn expensive to go on a gorilla trek because those (laughs) things are protected and that trek money goes to saving those gorillas that you're going to go see. And then of course the wild groups are are kept wild. You know, there's somewhere else. There's only a few select groups of habituated animals. Um, So I did want to just throw that out there as well. Um, Yeah. So what's next for you? What are your goals? Oh man. Um, exciting time, honestly. Um, really been super, um, really been super grateful to see such an overwhelmingly positive and supportive response to my work on Instagram. Um, you know, tripling the size of my account in just four months has been more than I could ever ask for. Um, some goals for me this year, um, are to, um, First of all, legitimize myself as a um, business owner in the photography world, um, you know, to start selling prints more consistently, stuff like that. But more importantly, to bring together, you know, this photography aspect with conservation. Um, and what I've been pondering and, and letting simmer is how the, the angle of approach I want to take, um, both in my personal photography as well as any other business ideas i've had i've had um too many ideas to count it's kind of overwhelming <laughs> sometimes oh, and i never know which one i should pursue but you know i, I have a lot of a, a lot of passion for this and i really um believe that through inspiring others on an individual level um you can really inspire a collective shift towards reconnecting with the wild and i've seen that already just with you know, 2,500 followers or how many I have. I get people who message me, old friends that I haven't talked to in years who are like, you made me realize how little I've been outside this year and I want to go back outside and I want to come visit in Wyoming or I want to go here. And I'm like, yes, like, yes, it's all about sharing the stoke and sustaining the stoke and um, getting people excited to be outside. And so what my goals this year are um, onefold, you know, incorporating conservation into my work more twofold obviously continuing to chase the best possible photographs um here in grand teton um as well as elsewhere in the world um i'd love to go back to alaska 
this summer, uh, Churchill to see some polar bears if the borders in Canada are open. Um, um, one animal in particular I've fallen in love with head over heels since a recent really awesome encounter here in, in Grand Teton are wolves, um, which ironically, I've always been fascinated by bears and never really cared for wolves. And then um, early in January, I had an encounter where I was as close as um, just a few yards from a wild wolf um, who came all the way up to um, my friend Pete and I um unbaited of course just the wild wolf coming to check us out to see what we were doing there and uh hearing him howl and he, seeing him chase his mate or potential mate um i don't think he succeeded in getting her uh, but <laughs> she has high standards <laughs> it happens you know you got you got to learn to deal with rejection sometimes bud um <laughs> um but you know I, i've really fallen in love with wolves so i'd love to have some more um photo opportunities with wolves, um, hopefully in Canada. Um, I'm actually going out next week in, uh, in five days, um, with, um, Brooke and Pete and Tiffany, who, uh, just touched on and a few other photographers. And we're going on a snowmobile tour in Yellowstone looking for wolves. That um, sick. so that'll be, that'll, that'll be epic. Um, so, you know, I think wolves will be a starting point for me in terms of conservation focus, especially here in Wyoming. There's so much um, animosity towards these animals, um, towards any canine, any canine, really. I mean, wolves, coyotes, foxes, like you see those on your private property in Wyoming. There's a more than 50% chance it's getting shot. You know, um, and a lot of people don't know this. Wolves are only protected in Wyoming in the national parks um, to the point that, I mean, there's so much hatred here for wolves. One was even shot inside Grand Teton last summer, literally down a dirt road. Someone drove down, saw a wolf, shot it, left, and no one ever found out who it was, but the wolf got killed. Um, um, so changing that that mindset on wolves and educating the public on that, I think, is a is a good first topic for me to do um and to focus on so I, ho I hope to do some work on wolves um but yeah honestly just my main focus is continuing to um inspire others i think that's the one thing i'm going to try to never lose is 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 showing the world how passionate i am about this because when other people see how much you're excited about something how passionate you are it's contagious. People inevitably become more interested, become more intrigued versus when you're talking about something you don't really care about, you know, it doesn't really strike the right notes. Um, but when you're passionate and you share that in a genuine way, I think genuine is a very important word here when it's genuine and it's honest. Um, you have the power to, to really, really make a change. Um, and so that's, that's my focus, staying genuine, continuing to build myself as a photographer, improving my photography, tying in conservation, focusing on wolves, um, and doing what I can to, uh, to contribute on any level, um, you know, to, to conservation. Um, I think I'll be guiding this summer, um, hopefully doing some nature tours here in Grand Teton and Yellowstone. Um, and uh, on my off time, you know, just shooting. So inspiring people, kind of tying back to that 
Greenland's that Greenland quote, and 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 I think the second the second piece of that quote is the most important to seek the wild open spaces filled with wonder and inspiration and to strive to share these pure places with others, inspiring change in the most honest of ways. And that, that is, that is my focus. Just share the stoke, inspire others. And the more, the more people fall in love with the wild again, the easier it'll be to convince people to, to care more, you know? Um, I believe in change from the bottom up, not from the top down. And every little action takes, you never know who you're talking to. You never know who you're inspiring. Um, and I think that's important, you know? That was beautiful. <laughs> that's <laughs> one hell of an awesome goal. And you're already reaching it. We're in this currently February of 2021. So I think you're well on your way, which is great. So do you have any asks or advice or anything that you would like to just directly talk to anybody listening right now? Um, yeah, I would say um, advice, uh, anyone listening who um, might not be fully satisfied in life, who might be you know, looking to make a change, who might be looking to find a more fulfilling path, which I think is such a common theme right now with coronavirus. Um, you know, a lot of people are questioning what they're doing. Um, just go for it. Like you have time, you, you can worry later. Um, worrying about potential repercussions never helps. Um, I would say if you're thinking about something, even remotely considering something, whether that's moving abroad, whether that's pursuing a new career, just try it out. What do you have to lose, you know? And that's kind of what I, how I felt about my move to Jackson. It's like, what do I have to lose? Like, I can move to Jackson. Literally, if I don't like it, six months later, I could be back in Denver. You know? Worst case, I spent a winter in Jackson Hole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there are all the worst <laughs> things to do. Um, so make the leap, you know? Um, I wasn't even financially that secure. You know, I, I was running out of unemployment. I just made the leap. I found it. I've been plowing snow all winter, you know, waking up at three 30 to remove snow here in town. And like, it pays my bills and it, you know what? It allows me to do what I want to do and put time into what I want to do in the future. So advice number one, um, which was ironic for me to be giving this advice. Cause I would not be saying the same thing just a year ago, uh -huh. but just take the leap. Honestly, you have nothing to lose. Um, advice for aspiring photographers. Just shoot, take pictures, meet more people, like make friends. That's, I don't even see it as networking. I see it as making friends, you know, and, and, and I've made so many connections. Like, um, this guy who I hope to meet up with soon here, who owns a ranch out here, who does a lot of wolf conservation, who literally DM'd me after seeing my wolf picture and was like, Hey, if you're ever interested, like we do, like, um, my family runs like the wolf conservation center in Idaho or something like let's connect, you know, it's just by being friendly and just trying to make friends, you're going to, good things will happen. You know, things unfold naturally. Um, when, when you're doing the right things, when you're doing things that you care about, when you're doing things that, once again, where passion is apparent, um, I think things things just unfold as they should. Um, um, and yeah, I mean, for anyone else looking to visit Jackson, I guess my last advice is come visit Jackson. It's freaking amazing out here. 
It's beautiful. Uh, God, that oh, yeah. guy sounds sick. I would love to chat with him. So, yeah, about that I'm, later. I'm gonna I'll go meet him sometime <laughs> soon and we'll reconnect. <laughs> that sounds great. Oh my gosh, it sounds like he would be perfect if he's that passionate about stuff to just talk more about that. That would be awesome. Yeah, let's let's jump a little further in that cap and just earmark that. <laughs> <laughs> why not Uh, yeah oh that's awesome that's awesome so well that's all the questions i had um is what's the best way for if anybody wants to get a hold of you um what's the best way if anybody wants to get in touch um so currently best way is on my instagram at arthur lefo i'm also on facebook now um under arthur lefo photography um lefo is spelled l-e-f-o lefo lefo however you want to say it it goes both ways honestly um and uh soon i'll have a website up that's finishing finishing touches on that but for now i would say instagram and facebook are the best um my instagram has the majority of my work i post stories frequently about my adventures when i'm out in the wild looking for wildlife so you get a first-hand live account of what i'm seeing um and then Facebook is kind of more just like a reiteration of my Instagram. Um, but yeah, reach out to me. Um, I'm currently selling prints via DM on a custom basis. Uh, um, so if you're interested in any of my work, that I would be super honored and stoked um, to, to be able to have my work up anywhere. Um, it's always an honor. Uh, and uh, yeah, just excited for, for the future. If you have any, anyone listening has any, um conservation ideas anything brainstorming hit me up you know i'm I'm here to to do what i can to meet new people like-minded people um and see what we can do collectively to make a difference um something that brooke and i coined recently is is that um we are a wolf pack um we're stronger together and i love um so you know when we howl together we're louder and when we're louder we make more of a difference um so that's that that was beautiful. I think on that, we will end on that as a beautiful wolf pack hound together. <laughs> Thank you so much, Arthur. Oh. <laughs> hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>